So we have some trigger warnings today. Uh, hopefully you saw those that, that there is going to be adultery, there's going to be murder, there's going to be um, rape, there's going to be infant death. So this is not, not a fun lesson, um, but hopefully it won't be too bad. But I, I wanted to warn you so that if you need to turn it off, just feel free to mute the lesson or, or turn it off or whatever you need to do. I completely understand. Um, be sure to turn your microphones off if you haven't already. So we're going to fast forward about 10 years from last week. David is a well-established king as king of Israel, and he's got treaties and alliances with various of the surrounding nations. Now, some of the alliances are forced by acts of war. Um, you can read like some of those in 2 Samuel 8. Uh, and some of them are just kind of uneasy truces. You know, we're not going to cover all the military conquests in class, but we will hit on one or two just so you get the flavor of what's happening here. For example, do you remember old Nakash the snake, whose standard of treatment for prisoners of war was to gouge out their right eyes? Well, he's still king of the Ammonites when David comes to power. But apparently he's not strong enough to directly challenge David. So, and he's, when this story opens, he's apparently sent gifts in recognition of David's coronation. So he, he's recognized David as king of Israel. As the story opens this week, old Nahash the snake has just died. And David sends messengers with gifts of condolence to his son, Hanun. Unfortunately, Hanun's advisors convince him that this is a trick and that David's messengers have been sent to spy out the land. So Hanun shaves off half the beard of each messenger and cuts off half their tunics midway across the buttocks and sends them off. When David hears of this, he is furious with Hanun the Ammonite. And he sends, he, he tells those uh, shamed messengers to stay in Jericho till their beards grow back and they can be seen in public again. Now, the Ammonites know, of course, that David will retaliate. This was an act of war. They're not strong enough to stand alone against David. So they hire mercenaries from their allies in the north, the Arameans, as well as soliciting help from other nearby nations. David, of course, sends Joab with the army of Israelite warriors. So let's think about the implications here. Let's think about the geography and the major players involved. So let's do a little flannel board here. If I draw the Mediterranean like this, this is all Mediterranean Sea over here. And if I draw in the Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee. Um, and I, if, I, if you've been in this class the whole time, you're going to be able to give me an idea of who the major nations are surrounding Israel. For example, if I asked you where the Philistines are, I know that you're going to know they're this strip right here along the seacoast and um, that they've got five big towns in here, typical enemies of the, uh, of the Israelites. And David has finally subdued them. They, they continue to cause trouble, but, but they're, they're not um, the threat to Israel that they were before David. He's been able to subdue them. And you would also be able to tell me, if I asked you where the Amalekites are, I know that you'd be able to tell me that they're down here south um, going towards Egypt. They're the nation that attacked Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. And I feel pretty sure that um, if I asked you who's the nation down here where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be, you would be able to tell me it's Edom, uh, that the Edomites are down here. And you may or may not remember that we've got some natural boundaries uh, between these nations east of the Jordan River, east of the Dead Sea and east of the Jordan River. And the first natural boundary that we've got is uh, between the Edomites and the Moabites, and it's the Zered. You probably don't remember that. I, it's not like I, you know, say a lot about it. And then halfway up the um, Dead Sea is another major river boundary, and that's the Arnon. 
and then kind of halfway up the Jordan River is another major river boundary, and that's the Jabak River. And we haven't really talked much about uh, the northern part of Israel um, yet, and the northern the nations on the north, and that and they're about to come into play here. And I've mentioned this particular river maybe once. Um, this river up here north is the Yarmouk River. And of course, there's the great big Euphrates River running out all up here. The scale, this is not to scale, obviously. The Euphrates is pretty far north. Um, but the, to, in this story, this is going to, these, these nations over here to the east are going to get um, to be kind of, it's going to be important uh, exactly how they're arranged here. So the Edomites are the furthest south. The next set is the kingdom of Moab. Moabites are next in this little layer. And in between the Arnon and the Jabak River are the Ammonites, uh, the kingdom of Ammon, which is nowadays called the kingdom of Jordan. Um, it's You can see the Jordan River is kind of half, they've got half the Dead Sea and half the Jordan River here. And, um, uh, north of them is all other kind of little kingdoms. Uh, and so we could, you could say the Ammonites um, go probably, they're, they're a big deal. So they're kind of spread out all along in here. And then there's um, up above the Yarmouk, there's this little kingdom called Geshur, which never was really a great big deal, but it was a big deal in David's time. And if you'll recall, he uh, married the princess there and they had a son. Um, and, and this son was like the third, uh, one of David's early sons is like his third son ever. And so the, the kingdom of Geshur, the, the princess and David had a son named Absalom. And I've been telling you to keep an eye on him. He's, He's going to come into play here. And uh, north of that is kind of this great big region up here in the north, which is the kingdom of Aram, the Arameans. Aram, A-R-A-M, Arameans. And they really kind of cover, they're, they're all over both south and north of the Euphrates. They're, they're kind of a big deal. Not kind of, they are a big deal. And David and Israel, they're taking all this land in between here. And so David has, you know, subdued the Philistines. He subdued the Amalekites. Um, he's, he's working on these other nations, even though he's related to the Moabites. Uh, and the Moabite king has um, sheltered his parents while he was uh, fighting with Saul. He ends up subduing the Moabites too. He forms a, an alliance with Geshur through marriage and has Absalom. And so where we're focusing now is on these couple of nations that are the biggest threat. And so in this, what we're talking about here are the Ammonites and we're about to, which are right here, this all this whole area in here and then and the Arameans. They're about to play a role. But what I wanted to point out to you was where Geshur sits in relation to the Ammonites and the Arameans. You can see it's sandwiched right in there. Um, Geshur, uh, which is where Absalom is from, is his mother is from, um, is right in the middle of this. So Israel, as you know, is allied with Geshur through marriage and also has settlements near Geshur. I mean, we've got Israelites over east of the Jordan. There are a couple of tribes over there. And so um, it's towards the settlements uh, and towards Geshur that Joab and his forces head. So as the battle lines are drawn, Joab realizes the forces of Israel will be trapped between the Arameans coming from the north and the Ammonites and their allies in the south. Things look bad. Joab bravely takes the best warriors and faces north to the Arameans. And he puts his brother, Abishai, in command of the bulk of the army and tells him to face south towards the Ammonites. 
they agreed to fight back to back. So if either of them needs help, the other can come to his aid. Be strong, Joab says to his brother Abishai. Let us fight, find strength to fight as hard as we can. The Lord will do whatever seems right in his eyes. As the battle is engaged, the Arameans flee before Joab's forces. And when the Ammonites see that their Aramean mercenaries have turned tail and run, they stop fighting and retreat into their walled city. The Arameans, however, aren't down for the count. They call for reinforcements from beyond the Euphrates River. When David hears this, he musters the entire Israelite army and marches to help Joab. David defeats the second wave of Arameans himself while sending Joab to mop up the Ammonites. And afterwards, David returns to Jerusalem. But look at that map. David has now conquered all these lands from Aram down to Ammon. Historically, Geshur aligns itself with the Arameans, who have now been defeated. And I'm thinking that Absalom may be holding some resentment that his ancestral kingdom has been reduced to nothing more than a vassal of Israel. Absalom's the third son. He knows he's not going to be David's heir, but maybe he thinks he could be king of Geshur. But now there is zero hope that Geshur can remain an independent kingdom when both the Arameans and the Ammonites have fallen. At best, he would be a puppet king. So this is just me drawing conclusions by looking at the map and reading between the lines. But I'm thinking that things are coming to a head with Absalom. I think he's harboring some deep resentment towards his father, David. Now, in those days, war was a seasonal thing. Israel has a rainy season in the winter. So war typically ceases in the winter until springtime when things dry out. And this particular spring, Joab is out with the army maintaining and securing Israel's borders while David is in his palace in Jerusalem. One night, David has trouble sleeping, so he goes out on the roof to walk around a bit. Of course, the palace is the most imposing structure in the city, so David's roof looks down on all the surrounding roofs. And as he walks, David sees a beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop nearby. Now, bathing in this context is a ritual bathing. The woman has just completed her menstrual cycle and is doing the requisite ritual cleaning. Um, David sends a servant to find out who she is. The servant returns to tell him her name is Bathsheba, and she's married to a Hittite soldier named Uriah. David wants her anyway, married or not. So he has Bathsheba taken from her home and brought to him, and he has sex with her. Bathsheba, of course, in the most fertile part of her cycle, becomes pregnant and sends word to David. Her husband's away. There's no way she can be pregnant. David's got to sweep this under the rug, so he concocts a simple but elegant plan. He sends a message to Joab to send her husband Uriah home from the front. When Uriah arrives, David asks for news of the battlefront and then sends him home to his wife along with provisions for a romantic meal. I mean, it's a foolproof plan, right? You know Uriah will not miss the opportunity to bed his wife. Well, David didn't count on Uriah's sense of duty. Uriah does not go home that night, but instead stays in the servants' hall at the palace. Frustrated, David calls Uriah in the next morning and asks why he didn't go home. Uriah responds, the ark and all the fighting men and my commander Joab are all sitting in huts and camped in the open field. How can I eat and drink and lie with my wife? I would never do such a thing. So David, thinking quickly, says, all right, stay here again tonight and tomorrow I will send you on your way. But the next day, David does not send Uriah off. Instead, he invites Uriah to dinner and gets him completely drunk and then sends him home. But even dead drunk, Uriah does not go home and sleep with his beautiful wife, but again sleeps in the servants' hall. So the next morning, David sends poor hungover Uriah back to the battlefront, carrying a written message for Joab. Unbeknownst to Uriah, that message is his death warrant. In it, 
David tells Joab to put Uriah on the front lines where the fighting is the worst, so he will be killed. I mean, literally, David writes in there for Joab to make sure Uriah gets killed. So Joab does exactly as David instructs him. He puts Uriah and a group of other soldiers into a situation where they are killed. Then he sends a messenger back to David and tells the messenger, if the king gets angry and says, why did you get so close to the town to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot from the wall? Don't you remember how Abimelech died when a woman flung a millstone down on him when he got too close to the wall? Why did Joab let the soldiers get too close to the wall? Simply tell the king Uriah the Hittite also died. When David receives the message, he responds, tell Joab, do not let this seem evil in your eyes. The battle could have gone either way. Make sure to attack that city all the more fiercely and utterly destroy it. When Bathsheba hears the news that her noble husband Uriah has been killed in battle, she weeps and keens. And when the timing of her mourning is over, David gathers her into his harem and she becomes his wife. In due time, Bathsheba's baby is born. David thinks his adultery and murder are well hidden, but nothing can be hidden from the Lord. Many centuries later, Jesus himself says, all things done in secret will be revealed. What is hidden in the dark will be brought to light. And besides that, I'm pretty sure everyone in the palace knows about David and Bathsheba's one night stand, and I bet they have suspicions about the convenient timing of Uriah's death. The Lord speaks to Nathan, David's court prophet, and Nathan bravely carries the Lord's words to David. Just as the Lord showed him to do, Nathan tells David a story. Once upon a time, there were two men. One was rich and the other poor. The rich man, of course, had lots of sheep and cattle, while the poor man had only one little ewe. The poor man loved his ewe, he and his sons had raised her together and she was their beloved pet. They would hand feed her and she would sit on the poor man's lap. But one day when the rich man needed a sheep for a meal for a traveler who happened to stop by, the rich man thought, I don't want to use one of my own sheep for such a purpose. So he took the poor man's ewe and slaughtered her. David was enraged and said, Doomed is the man who has done such a thing. He shall repay that poor man four times over because he had no pity on him. And Nathan says, you are that man, David. The Lord says, I anointed you king over Israel. I alone saved you from the hand of Saul. I gave you his house and his wives. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if you are not satisfied with all of that, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the gifts I've given you? You murdered Uriah using the sword of the Ammonites and you took his wife. You have despised me. Therefore, calamity will arise from within your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to a man from your own household. He will take them from you in broad daylight. What you did in secret, I will do in the sight of all Israel. David repents immediately and Nathan says to him, the Lord will not cause you yourself to die but the son born to you will die. And indeed, David and Bathsheba's infant son becomes gravely ill. David begs and begs the Lord to spare the child's life. He prays and fasts and refuses to eat or drink. But on the seventh day, the child dies. David's servants are afraid he'll harm himself if they tell him the child has died. But David sees them murmuring to each other and realizes the worst has happened. Trembling, the servants confirm that the baby has indeed died. The servants are astounded when David immediately arises and bathes and dresses and goes into the tent of the Lord to worship. But David tells them, as long as the child lived, there was a chance that the Lord would relent. But now that he is dead, I will have to go to him. 
for he will not return to me. Bathsheba is grief-stricken, of course, and David lays with her again. In due time, she gives birth to a second son, whom she names Solomon. The Lord, however, tells Nathan the child's name is Jedidiah, which means beloved of Yahweh. Some time passes. The children born to David while he was in Hebron have grown into young adults now. His eldest son is named Amnon. He's the son of Ahinoam, one of David's first wives. The third son, as you know, is Absalom. Well, Absalom has a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon has become so obsessed with her that he makes himself literally ill. He doesn't love her, apparently, but he's desperate to get her into bed, and he can't figure out how to make it happen without getting caught because she's a virgin. Now, David has a snake of a man in his court. This man is named Jonadab. He's David's nephew, and he's one of Amnon's best friends. Jonadab sees Amnon moping about and asks him, what on earth is the matter? When Amnon confesses that he's desperate for Tamar but can't figure out a way to get her into bed, Jonadab comes up with a plan. Jonadab says, go to bed and pretend like you're ill. Your dad, King David, will come in to check on you. After all, you're his eldest son. Tell him you want Tamar to come prepare you a meal and feed it to you. Well, Amnon thinks this is a great plan, so he does exactly as Jonadab suggests. And sure enough, King David sends word to Tamar to go and prepare a meal for her brother Amnon and feed it to him. Tamar goes, taking some dough with her. She kneads the bread and bakes it, and when she takes it to Amnon's servant to take into his bedroom, Amnon refuses to eat it. Amnon commands everyone else to leave his rooms. Then he says to Tamar, bring the bread to me here in my bedroom so I may eat it from your hand. But when she draws near, he grabs her and tries to rape her. Tamar struggles against him and says, don't, don't do such a wicked thing. I would be disgraced forever. And what about you? You also would be despised in Israel. Go to the king and ask for my hand in marriage. He will give me to you. I'm not sure she's right here since marriage of half siblings is prohibited in Mosaic law, but Amnon ignores her in any case and being more powerful than she, he rapes her. While Amnon has no intention of marrying Tamar in any case, he sees her as an object of desire and gratification. And once he's raped her, he despises her. In fact, he hates her more than he had ever loved her. He says, get up and get out. And Tamar says, no, rejecting me now would be an even greater wrong than you've already done to me. But Amnon refuses to listen to her. He calls his personal servant in and says, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. Now Tamar is wearing her richly ornamented princess dress. Remember how we talked about this garment back in the story of Joseph? Well, here's the other place in scripture where that word is used. Tamar rips her princess dress and pours ashes on her head and weeps and wails loudly as she walks through the palace. Her brother Absalom pulls her aside and discovers what has happened. He tells his sister to stop making a fuss and he brings her into his own household to live. She is quite literally ruined. Mosaic law decrees a rapist must marry his victim. But since Amnon and Tamar are half siblings, that remedy is impossible. She is a social outcast for the rest of her life. When King David finds out what happened, he is furious. But nothing ever happens to Amnon. He's the eldest son, and Tamar is apparently expendable in comparison to him. Absalom gives Amnon the silent treatment, not saying a thing but he secretly nurses a deep hatred towards Amnon because of what he did to Tamar. And I think he probably already hated Amnon for being the eldest son and David's heir. Well, two years pass and Absalom's hatred has festered. He's hatched a plan for vengeance. As you know, whenever it's time to shear sheep in this culture, it's a big macho time where all the men gather for drinking and carousing. 
What is totally ironic is that this was in the story of another Tamar. Remember Judah and Tamar and how that long ago Tamar had to dress up like a prostitute uh, and stand by the road while Judah uh, went to the sheep shearing? Well, here again, centuries later, in the story of another Tamar, a sheep shearing will set the scene. This time, Absalom goes to King David and invites him and all the court officials to come travel up to the border of Ephraim to celebrate the sheep shearing with him. King David says, we can't all go, it's too many people. So Absalom says, well, at least send Amnon, let him come. Now that raises red flags. It may have been a couple of years, but David's suspicious. And he says, uh, why Amnon? But Absalom wheedles and pleads and King David, who can't seem to say no to any of his children, finally says yes. But just to be sure nothing untoward will happen to Amnon, David sends all the rest of his sons with him. So Amnon and all of David's sons travel up to Absalom's ranch land, and they all predictably get drunk. And at that very moment, Amnon orders his men to spring their trap. The men kill Amnon while the rest of David's sons flee for their lives. Absalom himself flees to Geshur and hides there with his relatives. Word gets to David that Absalom has struck and killed all of David's sons. David stands and tears his clothes and falls to the ground, as do all the court. But Jonadab says, no, no, no. Absalom has always meant to kill Amnon. He said so many times, but he has no quarrel with your other sons. Do not be worried. Only Amnon is dead. I guess David is so distraught, he doesn't stop to wonder how Jonadab knows this. I mean, I wonder if Jonadab masterminded this plot too. Finally, the palace lookout spies David's sons returning and reports the good news to David. And Jonadab says, see, I told you so. And just as Jonadab finishes speaking, David's sons come in wailing loudly. And all the court, all of David's sons and King David himself weep and wail and mourn the loss of Amnon. David mourns Amnon for three years, but in the end, his grief is spent, and he begins to think about his exiled son, Absalom. We'll pick the story up there next week. Whew, that's quite a story. Let me get you into your breakout rooms. Be sure to uh, turn your mics and videos back on, and I'll see you in 15 minutes. There we are. Yay. Welcome back. Turn your um, mics back on so we can talk. This was a tough lesson. There's tough stuff in here, and um, hopefully the, I, I mean, whenever I read a story like this and I'm like, what in the world are you doing, Lord? Like, who is this? And what did you do with my loving God? You know, it's mm -hmm. like, yeah. um, <laughs> um, right. You know, so um, when that happens, I try to go back to the story and look really carefully at what the Lord himself said. Not all the stuff I imputed to the Lord or imagine the Lord. Did. I go back to what the Lord said or actually what the people writing down the story understood the Lord to say. Right. <laughs> right. That's yeah. And we talked about that some mm -hmm. that that again, you know, the Bible, including the Old Testament, was not was not God dictating. It was people's interpretation. And, the, uh, you know, the, the, the lives of people and the whole culture was so different back then and they had different views of God and this was just their, they were doing the best they, they could to understand uh, what God was about, but I don't know that I take it all literally. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, even if this was literal, uh, it still had such thick cultural overlays on it, right? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else did y'all come up with? I mean, there were there were some main questions in here. We won't go through every single one. The first one was, 
basically, what did the Lord say David's mistake was when he lusted after Bathsheba and took her? He went around God. Yep. If you had, would have asked, God might have provided. But instead of asking, he just did his own thing. And he took something that, that should not belong to him. Clearly, yes. Mm -hmm. We didn't discuss this in the group, but it's occurring to me right now. That's one of the major commandments, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we said he broke, he actually broke three, maybe more, but we got the three we got were um, adultery, covet. Well, first he coveted, then he committed adultery, and then he murdered. So he committed three of the big three at least. Well, and he lied about it. Oh, that's a that's a commandment too. So don't so no, four, four. Yeah, we were, four. We were, we were yeah, we pretty much said if it was anybody else other than David, they may have been toast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think that um the biggest issue is just that he forgot. He forgot God. He forgot who he was in relation to God. And he just, um, somebody in the group mattered, in the group said how he took matters into his own hands, kind of like Saul was doing all that time. And, you know, up until that point, David was always going to God and making decisions based on what God told him to do. And in this, he just kind of neglected all that. He just put it aside and I guess in, in today's vernacular with Christianity, we'd say he backslid, you know, <laughs> he, um, he, he forgot. Um, one of the Psalms says something about leaving your first love. And, oh, it says that in Revelation as well. And it's like he left his first love. He'd forgotten to put God there first. That's true. And, and, and in a nutshell, David forgot that all good things come from God. Mm-hmm. And, and God is the source of good things and blessings. Yeah. The end. I just, I just thought of something. Maybe it was because David figured God would say no. Ah, we said that too. <laughs> so that's very human. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, why should of, I bother asking God? He's not going to give me this. This breaks all the commandments. Yeah, exactly. So. Maybe that's the whole moral of the story. That's true. My daughter bought a horse once and we asked her, why did you buy the horse? Why didn't you talk to us? And she said, you would have said no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, was it better to ask for forgiveness than permission? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the, the modus operandi he was going by, I think. Yeah. But that really, I think, gets really down to the crux of it is what do you do if you think the Lord's going to say no? You yeah, know? That's so that's a takeaway. If I was going to write it one takeaway here, that would be one of them. Is think yeah. about what you do when you think the Lord's going to tell you no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The next big question, um, which I had in there a couple of times, was how women are objectified, how the baby was objectified, you know, and, and used as a thing in the story. And this kind of touches back on what Woody was talking about, you know, um, mm -hmm. but, but you said there's a lot of over uh, cultural overlays in this particular section of the word. And you're right, because, you know, what I was thinking when we had this conversation in our group is, you know, David mourned after his firstborn for three years because of his death. But nowhere does it say in there what he did with Tamar. He never did, unless I'm missing something. I don't. No, know. you're absolutely right. She just I don't remember him ever, ever ever having conversation with Tamar after she was raped by the same guy that he mourned for three years. Right. So you know. So if you flip that around, what does Tamar think? What, how does that make her feel? Abandoned. Yeah. And he didn't mourn the baby either. Yeah. 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 And um we don't and, know. It the story is not written that way, but we don't really know. Well, he didn't officially mourn because he got up and bathed and ate and you know right. went back to work. Well, and his and, own servants said something about why the baby was dying, you were praying and fasting, and as soon as he was dead, you just got up and walked off. Yeah. And and you know, one of the things that, that I brought up in our group was 
you know, when you look at the story, both women were victims and there's not a whole lot of attention paid to the fact that, I mean, Bathsheba was put in an untenable position um, mm -hmm. because she, you don't say no to the king. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I can't tell you how many yeah. sermons I have heard that tried to paint her as a scarlet woman um, because somehow that yeah. has to be justified. So David can be, you know, the man after God's own heart. Yeah. Um, right. But right. but Bathsheba was a victim, just like so many women, you know, you think of Roger right. Ailes victims and you think of some of the, you know, Epstein's victims and, and these women who were put in untenable positions by powerful men. Bathsheba mm -hmm. was, was a victim. And what I don't understand with Tamar is why didn't David make his son marry her? That would have solved well, all the problems. Well, and that was the thing I was struggling with yesterday, you know, was, you know, we know that Abraham and Sarah were half siblings. And in this case, they were half siblings. And what was the law around incest at this time? Were, oh. Would this have been considered incest culturally or not if they had different mothers? Yes, it was. law came in after Abraham had yeah. taken Sarah. And Am I right? Is that right? You're correct. You're okay. correct. When yeah. when Abraham and oh. Sarah married and um, incest just wasn't a problem uh, for all those centuries, then the Mosaic law came in and that changed it. Um, and that it is specifically listed as incest in the Mosaic law. But um, and so but the question is, is real in the sense that God is operating within their culture, you know, I mean, clearly we know from a health point of view that incest is not good, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the Mosaic law, when we studied that, it, we, we talked about how this law was moving them in a healthier direction, you know, but if you take the Bible as a whole, God was never been out of shape about the sex. He didn't punish Abraham. He didn't say one word to Abraham about it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so we need to, to begin to look at this kind of these cultural shifts in the same way and begin to look at what's healthy, at what's better, as opposed to, you know, getting all tangled up in rules about sex. And so the thing is, God never, um, God always condemned forced, unconsensual, non-consensual sex. Yes. He always condemned, you know, um, the taking of, of something that didn't belong to you. That's yes. always been condemned. Yes. Sex, as far as my studies of the Bible have found thus far, sex, loving sex has never been condemned. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have never found a place where two people who loved each other had sex that it was condemned. Well, it, it, it's, it's really about, I think God is always about us understanding that we're not supposed to wield power over each other in whatever form that might take. All right. Yep. That power, it, it's not an accident that over and over in the Bible, you see the phrase, all power and glory belong to the Lord. <laughs> That's like a thing. <laughs> so, and it applies in every part of our lives including sex, okay? The point is not the sex. The point is the power and the glory. So- Is it, is it not wielding power or is it not abusing power? I think, it, I think it is not abusing power, definitely, but I think it is recognizing that, that we should not stand between the Lord and another person. We don't have that right. Now, clearly, in hierarchies and in groups, there's always people who have power to direct the group and have power over right. others. And God put David in as king, right, Woody? You know, so I mean, clearly, God establishes leaders with power over people, mainly if we look back through what we learned already, because people insist on doing it that way. Mm -hmm. that so, was do you God's, think that wasn't God's original plan? That's, yeah. So do you think it's the way the writers wrote this 
particular section as to why God didn't, it didn't seem like God cared that, that this happened, that Tamar happened and that Bathsheba happened. And it didn't seem like God was there condemning the abuse of power. Yeah. Yes, I think you've hit it exactly. And several of you have, have hit that exactly, that that the writers understood the story this way. The writers understood God's this way. The writer understood our God this way. And that's why I wanted to, I wrote in here several times to step out of the writer's shoes and into the shoes of Bathsheba and then the baby and Tamar and think about the dynamics of the story from their perspective and look around yourself while standing in their shoes and look for God. And Sorry, Gail. And, and all I was going to finish up that, that thought saying is we don't have that part of the story, right? We don't right. have what the Lord did with these women. Um, who were abused and victimized, but we know the character of God. And so there is a whole area of scholarship in biblical studies that does exactly this. These scholars stand in the footsteps of the people who had no voice in the stories Mm. and think about where God is in that situation and, and think about the injustices and pull them forward to us and talk to us about how we are perpetrating those injustices because we're not reading the Bible properly and pulling off these cultural overtones. That we have become complicit in the injustice because we are justifying it based on what is not God, but what is cultural overtones from an ancient culture. So is it fair to say then that back in these times that people were misinterpreting God? I think that it is, I think we all misinterpret God to some extent, right? We can't know God, but I do, I do think that God was trying really hard to reveal to him how different he is than the gods they had grown up believing. I was thinking with, in relationship to this baby, that um, it appears that the baby was born with some sort of defect or something. The baby was sick from the time it was born until it passed. Yes, it it only lived Right. In that time period, a male child who was infirm or weak in some manner was going to be looked down upon, bullied, um, treated unjustly. So this child that was conceived was born with some kind of birth defect or something. We don't really know what it is. They're the writer is looking at it from the cultural standpoint, oh, God is punishing him for his sin. Mm-hmm. I look at it from the standpoint, from the humanity standpoint, that children are born with birth defects sometimes. Mm-hmm. And mm, in, the, in the text of this, God taking him home, I believe that babies, if they die, go to heaven. Now, I don't know if there's proof of that in the Bible. I just, that's my belief. God's love so, is proof of that. So if God takes this baby out of that life, which would have been a miserable life and puts him in heaven, I mean, yeah, God loves that baby. God cared for that baby. God took that baby home to be with him. He didn't leave him in a situation that could have been intolerable is how I I don't look at it as God is punishing Abraham, listen to me, David, but rather that he is having mercy on that child. Rescuing the child. Mm -hmm. We we mentioned that as well in our group. I, I, you know, I kind of take, I I told people, um, I kind of take a a legalistic view. Sins were committed, um, but promises were made to David. But 
since we're committed and uh, somebody had to pay the price, unfortunately it was a child. That, is that, would that not be a pretty legalistic view of it or not? I think that that was the view of these people. That is how they understood gods in general, is that. I have a question. Um, wouldn't it be, be a, a thought to, to explore the word holy? Because in Leviticus, over and over, it says, for I'm your God, and that we should be holy as he is holy. You know, and the commandments are an establishment of some of the things that he considers holy. You know, and then also in First Peter, it says, be ye holy like I am holy. You know, and um, so I'm just wondering that... Um, he just had his long suffering with us humans because he knows how weak we are and we're prone to sin, especially sexual sin. Sexual sin has just been prolific through all the generations, no matter in what position you held, especially if you were an authority like David, you know, because even nowadays, how many pastors fall, how, you know, it's just sex is a very uh, strong emotion for humans and we're very susceptible to that. You know, so um, I think he was trying to bring us out of that, hence maybe the Mosaic laws, hence the Ten Commandments, is to become more and more holy like he is. So he can be closer and closer to us. Because like we talked about the sin last week when, when the guy tried to catch the ark and was struck dead because his glory leaked. It was a consequence of, of becoming too close to God when you're in sin. Does that make any sense? It does. It's just a thought. It does make sense. And I think that that is a really major uh, theme and viewpoint that we're trying to shift here in the way we're studying scripture. And I'm glad that you brought that up in conjunction with the great point that Ross is making too. Um, because, uh, because of the way this culture who wrote the Bible saw gods, they understood sin as having to be paid for right mm -hmm. they yeah. understood yeah, sin as having yeah. to have a punishment go with it that whole strata is cultural we have carried it forward into our theology as christians but the whole thing is cultural mm. if we well, look but let me finish the thought here if we look at what God was doing with people, what we see consistently is God drawing near to his people and saying, I am here. I want to bless you. I want to be with you. I want to clean away what is not holy in you. And, and by becoming closer and closer to me, he said, I am by definition, holy, I am pure holiness. And if you in your humanity get too close to me and touch me physically, you will be completely burned away because mm -hmm. everything that is impure in you will burn away. Um, you will become holy. And we've read that story, right? Several times and, and looked back at it about how God's, the way holiness works is like um, a piece of metal alloy being put into a refiner's fire mm -hmm. and subjected to the intense heat, in more and more intense heat until all that is impure is burned away and all that's left is gold. And, and that is a really good metaphor for understanding our relationship with God and with what God is providing for us because God wants us to draw closer and closer and closer to him. And the more we think on God, this is why God said, write it on your arms, write it on your foreheads, talk about me with your kids, steep yourself like a, like a, like a tea bag in who I am. And that, that will 
because this these things that are not holy, that are not whole and healthful and good, to leech away from you. And we find this same exact message in the New Testament, where, where Paul says, you know, if you are living in the spirit consistently, if you're soaking up that water in your roots, the fruit you will bear will be peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and loving kindness. And if you are, if you are steeping yourself in the spirit, you can't help but produce this kind of fruit. But then we come to the story that you're talking about where um, Uzzah reached out his hand and touched the ark and he's like, you know, turned to dust, right? He, he's killed. What is going to happen to us when we get so close to God? We draw closer and closer to God. Are we drawing closer and closer to death? And that is why Jesus came. Because Jesus takes us that last step. It's not that Jesus had to, you know, reach out to God on our behalf. It's the other way around. It's that God reached out to us through Jesus to make that last step possible. God made himself human so we could touch him. In his holiness, Jesus brings us directly into the throne room. He makes it possible for us to touch God. That's beautiful, Gail. I, I love I, that I, image. That the, makes sense. Not to belabor it. Belabor it. <laughs> yeah, losing my words, but. One of the things we talked about in our group was similar to Shirley's um, thoughts, but it wasn't, it was parallel, but slightly different in that I think Marlene brought up, um, in Texas, we have a statute presumed biological father. If you're married, it's your baby. Uriah, that was his baby because it was his wife. And if that baby had survived, what would that have done to the lineage? There wouldn't have been a Solomon that we know of, you know, because she would have been a widow with a baby and there would have been a whole other thing, but everybody at the palace knew that it wasn't Uriah's baby. So that baby would have probably been shunned and had a life of hardship. Even if he wasn't born with a abnormality in birth, because it, we, we are assuming that if, if we just go off what is said, you know, the baby lives seven days, the Lord can take you at any time. That's wow. right. And it's a very complicated story. But let's, yeah. uh, we're running out of time. Um, oh, Ross, were you trying to yeah. say something? Penny? Yeah, a few things. I'm sorry, the, the, maybe the dispensation is coming out of me. <laughs> um, I mean, God's intent for uh, the way I, I believe I read it, remember, God's intent, you know, when he gave the law was to show the people that they actually need grace, uh, that they'll never live up to the law. Uh, they need grace. But under the Mosaic law at the time, they need, uh, I, I kind of consider the baby the scapegoat, if you would. Mm -hmm. And it had, it had to happen. But, you know, fortunately, later on, you know, it, it, when Jesus comes and, and in our time frame, we have, we have the grace uh, and we don't have to have the scapegoat. That's a, that's a lovely segue into what I want to talk about last, if you've got time to stick it out. And if you don't feel free to, you know, hang up. But um, the, the last question I'd like us to ponder is why did the Lord forgive David of adultery and murder? Oh, we talked about that for a while and one of the thoughts is um the lord knew david he knew his heart and he knew that david would make mistakes but that he still longed for his relationship with god and he kept that he may have stepped away from it from time to time but he was keeping his eyes on God for the most part. 
um, this situation with Bathsheba, he took his eyes off the Lord, obviously, but then he repents. And in the case of Saul, um, God revoked the anointing. But he never did that with David because, like you said, God sees time as a pretzel. He knew David would, or we believe, if, if we believe that he is knowing of all things, that David would have challenges and that he may not handle them appropriately. But he also knew that David was in deep relationship and fellowship with him, if that makes sense. Yeah. Let me, let me go back to Abraham. Sorry. No, go ahead. You know, Abraham made mistakes, but, you know, again, uh, Lord, the Lord made promises to Abraham uh, because Abraham was, uh, uh, you know, his, his deeds and belief were credited unto him as faith. And, and uh, I think probably the same is here. Um, there's a special relationship. Promises were made to David. Um, you know, he still sees David as, uh, I, I think, a faith, you know, faithful servant. Uh, but he went off the rails this time. Yeah, but he also said to you, God alone did I sin. And I think his remorse was the sin that he committed. Because that's, it, I think the whole thing is the heart is yep. the is the issue you and know Saul's heart was wayward way wayward yeah, Abraham was after the Lord David was after the Lord mm-hmm. yep and my two cents in in this is God doesn't look at levels of sin sin is sin and God forgives sin so if God forgives sin why wouldn't he forgive him for the murder and for the adultery and you know whatever else he did because he repented. There had to be, well, because to us, we put levels on sin. God doesn't. That's a human thing. And to God, all sins are equal. And if you've committed a, one sin, you're guilty of all of the yeah. sins. There's a verse that says that. Yeah. So, and God says that if you ask forgiveness, he's going to forgive you. So, I mean, he had already forgiven him even before he asked for forgiveness because he knew he was going to ask for forgiveness is my, that's what my two cents is. But so I think remember God has a plan and he knew that at some point Jesus was going to link in to the house of David. Is that correct, Gail? Yes, sure. Sure he did. Um, And I want to just offer a little bit here is that. Um, it's, I, I pulled out in the questions that the Lord had already told Nathan he had forgiven David before Nathan even went into David and before David had a chance to repent, you know, before David was convicted. And I want to pull that out to say that we have that same assurance that God has already forgiven us even before we are convicted and repent. This is in the Old Testament pre-Jesus, I also want to point out. Mm-hmm. You know, God is all about welcoming us if we even lean kind of towards him. <laughs> you know, God is going to meet us like the father met the prodigal son god is going to come to us wherever we are and the and and i want to point out that we need to ponder what the implications of this story this part of the story is in how we ourselves as a society treat the incarcerated mm. mm-hmm. that's good we, we just saw a ruling come down from the Supreme Court about keeping children in prison for life because they murdered. We need to rethink our system of justice in the light of God's system of justice. Yeah. And lastly, I want to, uh, just a second, Renee, I'll come right back to you, but the, the other point I want to make 
is that we need to rethink how we view our own sin and how we are tempted into holding onto it and flagellating ourselves with it and be and accusing and ourselves with it and allowing ourselves to be accused with our own sin, even sin that we commit over and over and over and over when God himself has already forgiven us for it. That is the same thing as David despising the gifts God had already given him. Renee, what were you saying? So like I was telling the group, I mean, I'm trying to unlearn stuff that I've learned from my life. And part of that was from my grandmother, who was a wonderful person, but she was Catholic. And anytime anything bad would happen, my grandmother would be the first one. She said, well, something bad happened. So you need to go and meditate and figure out what sin you committed to make blah happen. So that was kind of ingrained in me from a young age. So what y'all are saying, let me get, is that God doesn't make bad things happen to punish us for sin. I am saying exactly that. With the one exception that we see the only time we see in scripture, God actually punishing people by letting things bad happen to them. You know, he, he likes is it, the scenario is God protects us. God puts a shield of protection and love around us. And there are times we see in scripture frequently in these stories where God says, okay, you insisted, you chose this, you know, I'm going to withdraw my hedge of protection and let you have what you asked for. You know, I'm, you want an idol? Okay, let the idols protect you. I'll stand over here and watch what happens, you know? And the only time God does that is after God has told them specifically, they've understood what, what God was saying. They've accepted overtly what God was saying and said, yes, we will follow you, Lord, and we are yours. And, you know, we know what we need to do. And then they go off and do the exact opposite. God never withdraws that hedge of protection and as, quote, punishment, you know, letting you suffer those consequences without first making sure that you absolutely know exactly what you're doing and you're doing it willfully. There are natural consequences to bad decisions. Yes, but, and so we, we live in a world where there is death and the wages of all sin is death. All right. There is sin in the world. Therefore there is death. Mm-hmm. And so we are physical people. Our bodies die. We are in the physical realm subject to death in all its forms, both spiritually and physically. And so we, it would be bad logic. If you ever took a logic course in math class or philosophy, you would know you can't logic backwards like that. You can't say, oh, I died there or something bad happened to me. Therefore, God was punishing me. The logic doesn't work that way. And so what we're trying, working really hard, we're doing hard, deep level work here as we're studying these scriptures, because we are attacking some, some, some sacred cows here in the Judeo-Christian ethic. And we are stripping away. I'm trying to give you such a different perspective on who God is and how God loves us and how God relates to his people. Mm-hmm. So don't feel bad if it feels hard. <laughs> so, so the big aha for me in this conversation is that not only the the ancient writers of the early Hebrew texts, but all the way up until today with modern Christianity, we have misunderstood God's purpose for our repentance. Mm -hmm. 
that our repentance is not to have God say, okay, you've, you've done enough and I can see you're really sorry and therefore mm-hmm. I'll forgive you. The purpose is for us to realize where we screwed up and to change and realign ourselves with God. Yes. It's for our benefit. Repentance is for our benefit, not to put us back in rights with God. It's not to pay for our sin. Yeah, that it's it's to get our our attitude and heart and mind back realigned where it needs to be. So it's a growth thing for us. It's not an atonement thing. Yes, yes. So that's like a lot to take on board. So we probably should stop, especially since we're like 25 minutes past. <laughs> but that was a rich conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. It was wonderful. And I will see you next week. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.